Well, good morning. People still waking up. It's good to see a number of you who we haven't seen for the summer and you're back with us. It's uh, a blessing as always to be in the house of the Lord and to worship him with you. Well, this morning we're going to go through Ephesians chapter 2 and we're not going to get to the Sermon on the Mount till after Labor Day, but we are going to get back to the Sermon on the Mount and Hopefully, we'll be able to see a connection between the two of them. But we're going to begin this morning coming to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words as he closes out his Sermon on the Mount. He tells, and in fact, he warns his disciples in Matthew 7, 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall. Of it. I think we're getting a little bit of feedback. Are we still getting a little bit of feedback on the mic? I feel like I'm back in 1977 in London. All right. Every summer, Julie's family um, arranges a time to set apart for the Hongs to get together. And they do this in a very sweet way once a year so that we have this opportunity to be together. And to make sure time doesn't go by without us having time together, three generations, grandparents, parents, and children. And this last year, they had arranged very sweetly for us to be together in the place that was chosen was Lahaina in Maui. And of course, you know, not long afterwards, things took a very dire direction there. And so uh, Julie's sister, Joan, reached out to the Airbnb owner, uh, the place that we all stayed, and to see if they were okay. And they were able to let us know that they were fine, but they sent us a photo via Facebook of the place that we had stayed together, and there was nothing left but char and this vestige of a vehicle that sat in the front, all burnt out. And you know, as we dealt with that this summer and thought about that and our hearts were burdened and saw all the places where we had walked just completely wiped out. It brings us back a little bit to what Jesus was saying and we see the truth, the sobriety, the necessity of taking Jesus at his word. As we return this fall and we sort of get into gear for the fall, we think of our families, we think of school, we think of ministry, and our focus this year, our theme is loving and serving Christ's church together. Jesus' words really confront us with some really important questions, not just for church, not just for ministry, but really every aspect of our lives, our marriages, our families, our work, our relationships, what are they built on? And are they built on something that is going to crumble when, in fact, trials and tribulations 
and fiery judgment, all of which God has promised in his word. No one escapes. God has promised that for this world, and we're seeing it play out in our nation. Will our houses stand? Will our marriages stand? Will our relationships stand? Will our love and service of the church stand? Are they built on something solid that can stand and endure the worst? Not just this world, but God as well will bring to bear. Or will they crumble? Well, the good news of God's word is that the true church, Christ's church, will indeed stand. And in fact, the history of the church for 2,000 years is regardless of the persecution, regardless of the natural disasters, regardless of incarceration, imprisonment, and martyrdom, Christ's church has stood. And the reason it stood, brothers and sisters, is not your gifts and mine and how great we are and getting together and deciding, hey, we've got a great program here, we've got a great VBS, or we do street evangelism. It stood because its foundation has been nothing less than the life of Christ. It stood because God reigns supreme. It stood because the church and the lives who are part of this church belong to Christ and not the world. It stood because the church is God's great masterwork of grace. It is entirely his work and not the work of men. And that is the reason why it has stood it stands, and it will continue to stand, regardless of what this world brings. And that, in many ways, brothers and sisters, is our big truth for this morning, that the church is God's work, not the work of men. And it's an important truth that we come to grips with, because so often when we're in church, we tend to think of ourselves. We tend to think of what we do. We tend to think of what we're supposed to do, what we need to do, what we should be doing. Does this church do this? Does this church do this? Do they do this? Do they sing this way? And we have our eyes fixed below when they should be fixed above, and we miss the point that what's beautiful and wonderful about the church is it's God's work. And what's beautiful and wonderful about the person sitting beside you is not their ethnicity or how much they serve in the local church or their giftedness or whether they sing in tune or out of tune. It's that they are, if they are a child of God, God's masterpiece or masterwork of grace. They belong to him. They're still in process. God is not yet finished, but he is doing a mighty and amazing work in them in Christ. And to be next to them, and to see them and to see firsthand what God is doing in this world, in their life, is a gift and a privilege that is priceless. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And we're going to read through the first half of chapter 2, but we're going to go through the entire chapter of Ephesians 2. You'll recall, we've actually been through this before. I preached on the first half and John Cito preached on the second half. But this morning, we're going to put it all together. And in part, because the burden of my heart is we need to revisit as a church as we get ready for the fall what the church is. 
who it belongs to, and why God loves it so much. Ephesians 1, verse 22, And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think you've heard me share with you before years ago as a tourist in Florence. I had the opportunity to go to the Galleria dell'Accademia, which houses Michelangelo's famous sculpture of David. And the dilemma I had, which I've shared with you many times, I hate lines, I hate waiting, Julie will tell you this, and I also love gelato. And so the dilemma is, am I going to wait for an hour in a hot line as if we were in Disneyland or Disney World to see yet another statue, a statue which I've seen photos in art history classes, ad nauseum, familiar with it, know about it. Am I going to wait in line for this or could I be sitting at a cafe down the street, eating arguably the best gelato in the world at Vivoli. And so I came to the conclusion, if there's a line, I'm not going. I'm going to be at that gelateria on the corner eating gelato, and my friends can wait in line. If there's no line, maybe I'll go. So as fate would have it, there was no line that morning, which was surprising. And so, okay, with them, with the guys, okay, sure, why not? So I stumbled in. And then moments later, I was standing stupefied and mesmerized as I looked up at this 17-foot work of art, this masterpiece, unparalleled. And I walked around, almost speechless, which my wife will tell you, miracle, right? And the only thing I could think of that went through my mind as I looked up and gazed was that I was such an idiot 
It's a thing that came through my mind that I would forego the privilege of beholding this amazing, unparalleled masterpiece because the line was too long. I didn't want the inconvenience. I had seen a picture before or for a cup of gelato. Now, brothers and sisters, when I hear people talk about the local church, and as a pastor, I hear those things, and people typically come and share with me their concerns, their grievances, what's wrong, what should be done. It takes me back to me in Florence, and I wish they could come inside and I wish they could stare and behold, and I wish their eyes would be opened by faith to what the Lord is doing in his local church so they could see the beauty and the wonder and the greatness of our God and the miracle of new life in Christ as opposed to missing all of this because of the hassle and inconvenience and the grievances they have. And as we come back to Ephesians chapter 2, the point that Paul is making is that the local church, this church in Ephesus, which was probably only 10 years old, filled with new believers, many who were not mature, some Gentile, totally foreign to the whole history and oracles and covenant of God, some who were Jews, and maybe some who were a little bit difficult too, of why are you in the church? And the point that he's bringing to them in this passage, in the core as we get to verse 10, which is very much the linchpin, is the church, the local church, is God's masterpiece of grace in Christ. And that is, in fact, our first point for this morning. The church is God's masterwork or masterpiece of grace in Christ. In verse 10, the apostle Paul writes, he says, we are, and he's saying me, you, together, the apostle, and also these new believers, for we are his workmanship. And the Greek word that he uses is poema, which can also be translated masterwork or masterpiece. And elsewhere in scripture, this Greek word poema translating the Hebrew, is used to describe God's masterpiece or masterwork of salvation. When God saves sinners and he brings them into his family. So in Psalm 92.4, the psalmist writes, he says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad. By what? He says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. He doesn't come in and say, God, how big the temple is. This is what makes me glad. He doesn't come in and say, God, how great those Levitical choirs are. They make me glad. God, because this temple and these people are doing so many good works in the community, this makes me glad. You know, he comes and he says, what makes him glad, what makes him sing is the Lord God's masterwork of salvation, God's work in their midst. When you look at the context of Psalm 92, this is what he is talking about. And this, brothers and sisters, is what makes the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 break out into a eulogy, blessing the Lord and what he has done 
It's the work that God has done to save these pagans and these Gentiles in this city of Ephesus who had no awareness, who were completely cut off, and he's merged them and brought them together with believing Jews, and he's made them one new man in Christ. I think it's one of the reasons he loved Timothy so much because Timothy was half Greek, half Jewish. His father looks like he was not part of the picture. And in his love for the Lord, Paul saw what the Lord was doing in God's good work. He was fulfilling all his promises in the Old Testament. He was unveiling the mystery of the gospel that God would bring his salvation, not just to the Jews, but to every tongue and every nation to the worst of sinners. For we are his masterwork or masterpiece. Christ here is proclaiming through the Apostle Paul to this local church, to the Gentile believers in Ephesus as well as the Jews, that their new life in him, that this local church and this life of this local church is not a work of men. And the Roman Empire has nothing in comparison and pales in comparison to what the Lord is doing. And it is shown over the testimony of time. By the 3rd century or 4th century, Rome is crumbling. The wealthiest, strongest empire at that time and the church is continuing. And as Rome falls, they need to look to the church in Rome to hold things together because the leadership in Rome is so rotten. Christ is telling them, though they can't see it at the time, that this is God's amazing work of grace. In him, it is the gospel made visible. And to help them appreciate this truth, he needs to take them back. Verse 1, step by step by step. This is what he's doing in chapter 2. The apostle Paul is walking them step by step by step through what God has done, his works of grace in their lives. And brothers and sisters, I think it's a help for us sometimes to stop and consider our lives and to see and draw those markers step by step for the ways God has done great things in our lives. This is what Joshua was doing in Joshua chapter 4 when he gets those stones and he says, every man from a tribe, take one of those stones and put it in the riverbed and put it on the side so when your children walk by, you can let them know this is the mighty work of the Lord, that we are here in this land because the Lord worked and delivered us and stopped the waters of the Jordan and brought us through on dry ground. And so this is one of the reasons the Apostle Paul takes us all the way back and goes step by step. And what's amazing and what adds to the wonder if we come back to masterworks or masterpieces is where the artist begins. And for Michelangelo's David, what made it a wonder to some degree is that the marble that he was given was actually the failure of another sculptor. Someone had worked on this massive block before and he was unable to bring it to completion and the church and the people who were in charge had this huge investment that was sitting partially sculpted in a churchyard for 25 years and they wanted to get their money back on it and so they gave this piece to Michelangelo and out of that shifted because it started on its side becomes Michelangelo's David. A failed piece of marble. But as Paul comes in verses 1 through 3, he reminds us 
that the raw material God has transformed into his church is something infinitely more horrific than a failed sculpture or a flawed piece of marble. Look again at verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom some of us, is that what it says? Among whom we all, no exceptions, the Apostle Paul, John MacArthur, all of us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't think you're better. And wow, would that change our attitude and how we treated one another if we walked through these doors and we remembered what we were and we didn't think we're better than the next person or the person who's unchurched. Because according to God's word, this is what we all were. This is what we all are. Brothers and sisters, this is every aspect of our life that is without Christ that is not built on the rock. Every aspect where we hear God's word, but we are not doing it. It is a rotting corpse of sin, enslaved by the world, enslaved by Satan, enslaved by our sinful and selfish desires, and by nature it is offensive to the holiness of God, and it is toxic to everyone and everything we touch. And this remains true, brothers and sisters, of any aspect of our lives that is not fully submitted to Christ and his word. A relationship that is not submitted to Christ and his word. An attitude that is not submitted to Christ and his word. A marriage that is not submitted to Christ and his word. A ministry that is not submitted to Christ and his word. A pulpit, a shepherd, a father, a parenting that is not submitted to Christ and his word. A finance report which nobody sees that is not submitted to Christ and his word. Yeah, good intentions. Toxic and offensive and damaging to everything we touch. And brothers and sisters, how often do we fail to see that the help and the work and the love that we so desperately need is not your help and not mine? Have you ever had those people in your life? They give gifts, they come and help, and when they walk away, you've got twice as much work to do? I mean, that's just part of living, right? We've all had that, where suddenly there's this gift which expires in six months and you find your credit card is being billed. Or there's this thing that you're given and suddenly you have to put it together, right? I mean, that's what we bring to the church, brothers and sisters. So why are we so enamored with what we bring, our talents, our time and ability? The help we need, brothers and sisters, the love we need is God's, not ours, because his love and his help is not toxic like ours. And what makes the gospel such good news is two simple words that change everything. It's not, but I, Pastor Mark, but I did, Pastor Mark, but you, no, that changes absolutely nothing. 
Yeah, but I. Yeah, but you. Yeah, it is a mess. But what makes the church special, brothers and sisters, what makes a believer special, what makes a marriage special, what makes a relationship special is not me, it's not you, it's not but I and all the excuses we make. It's but God. Because when God steps in, he takes broken people and he makes them straight. And in fact, he fulfills his promises. As you look at the history of God's word, he fulfills his promises, not through perfect people, but through broken people, but broken people who are willing to let the Lord help them. I tell my boys repeatedly, what is a Christian? It's not a person who's perfect or sinless. That's never gonna happen until Jesus comes. It is a person who's submitted to Christ, and it is a person who looks to Christ to give the help they so desperately need. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which we loved him, well, you can shout out when I'm being a heretic in the pulpit. No, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, and what is this great love that changed everything? Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. This is a love that is more than feelings. This is a love that is more than flowers. This is a love that is more than an emoji. This is a holy love that does not tolerate sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a love that says sin is horrific, sin is terrible, your sin is killing you and others. I will pay the price. My son must die in your place. If the guilt is to be removed, the price is to be paid, the barrier is to be removed, and there's going to be forgiveness and reconciliation in this marriage, this relationship, this church. It is a holy love that sanctifies the sinful. It is a holy love that saves. It is a love, brothers and sisters, that works. I'll pass on the love that gives feelings, brothers and sisters. I want a love that works. And I think so too does every wife and every child at the end of the day. It's a holy love that gives what cannot be earned and it gives what is not deserved, which is a new life in Christ and a new life with Christ. And so this is why the Apostle Paul goes on to say, by grace you have been saved. Passive. God has done this. It's a divine passive. What God has done to you, by grace you have been saved, set free from the rule of sin, forgiven, and given a new life in Christ. So, church family, have you been saved by grace? Not have you been saved by a decision you made or a choice you made for Christ or coming to church, or being a nice person, or serving in a particular place, or because you think you're a Christian because you were raised. Have you been saved by grace? 
Have you been made alive together with Christ? Have you been raised up with Christ, verse 6? Have you been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Have you been washed? Have you been forgiven? Have you been made alive and sensitive so that the way you look at the world is completely different than the way you looked at it before? Have you been united with Christ and exalted with him? Have you been given a joy and delight to walk in the light rather than all the whistles and bells of the world? Because this is what God does for every sinner he saves by grace. No exceptions. The Apostle Paul, the idolaters at Ephesus, he does it for everyone. There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Every sinner God saves by grace. He unites us with Christ. He transforms us. He sanctifies us. And he makes us a part of his family, also known as the church. Why? Well, Paul explains in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God saved you and loved you so that you can be a trophy and testimony to his love for you and his grace. And then Paul says again in verse 8, in case we forgot, for by grace you have been saved through faith, a confidence in God's work, not ours. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works or human effort so that no one may boast. Brothers and sisters, what is the undeniable hope, the undeniable beauty, the undeniable wonder, the undeniable joy of a new life in Christ? It is that this new life, undeniably, is entirely God's work and not ours. And according to God's word, this is the life of a true local church. It's a place where the light that shines is a light that demonstrates God's handiwork of grace and mercy and love. It does not highlight and shine how great we are in all the things that we do. And brothers and sisters, I know you've encountered other believers where you come and you see them, they may not speak the same language. They may be from a different country. They may be from a different background, but their lives have been transformed by grace, and you were encouraged in meeting them because you see what the Lord has done. And they're typically not the people who come and boast and say, well, the Lord did this for me, and the Lord did this for me, and I'm, you know, I used to be like this. And you just hear their story and see what's there, and you see over a period of time how the Lord has taken them and delivered them, and you see and you can taste and you can smell the odor of God's grace and his handiwork and his fingerprint in their lives. It's one of the joys of coming to church on a regular basis because you get that every week, whereas you don't typically get that in the world and in our places of work. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul saw in that little church in Ephesus, the local church in Ephesus. How? What did he see? All the different programs they were running? He says in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love towards all the saints. There are two hallmarks of grace, brothers and sisters, that are evidence that God's work of grace has begun in a life. Faith in Jesus as Lord, and that means enduring obedience. Jesus, you want me to do it? I'll do it. You said it? Okay. And a love, a holy love, a sacrificial love, a love like Christ towards some of the saints, even the newbie who poops his diapers on a regular basis and needs to be fed every couple of hours. And in 2, verse 10, he says, for we, this is how he ties it all up, the Apostle Paul and the Ephesians together are his workmanship, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what is the local church? It is God's workmanship and his masterpiece of grace. Finished yet? No, not until Christ comes. But it is still his masterpiece of grace, a new people, a new family, different backgrounds, different experiences, different preferences, whom God has saved and united in Christ, not like the world and not united like the world, united like the world in their past or their preferences or their programs or their politics, united by God's work of grace in their lives in Christ. Is that what unites us, brothers and sisters? Well, this brings us to our second point for this morning. God's work of grace unites believers in Christ. Is God working in your life and mine? Then it's going to go in one direction and one direction alone. It's not going to go where we're isolated and staying as a lone wolf or kind of doing our own thing or operating on our own M.O., Brothers and sisters, if you've been a believer for a while and that's still how you're functioning, then that's not God's work of grace in your life. Because God's work of grace always brings unity and unity in one place and one place alone. It's not in our sports teams. It's not in the songs we sing. It's not in the ministries we serve. And that unity goes in one place and one place alone. It is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, what a hope that is. What a hope that is for our marriages. Man, if, if the only thing that bound us together is we like the same sports team and we like the same songs, where would we be after three to five years? And that's why a marriage that is united in Christ is a marriage that will stand regardless of what comes. That is why a relationship with a child that is built on Christ, it will stand regardless of the transitions that come. The Apostle Paul points out this is what sets apart God's work of, of grace in the local church. This is what sets apart the true work of Christ in our lives. How can we tell? Where is it? Well, he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, but the good news is God's work doesn't stop there. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Our works? No, for the good works which God prepared beforehand. So whose works is he talking about? 
God's masterwork of grace in your life. It's not, brothers and sisters, so you can stand and look pretty for the rest of your life and say, hey, I was saved. Great, let's move on. Where is God's work in your life? How have you grown? How is he uniting you more day by day with Christ? And how is he therefore uniting you more and more with the members of the local church who he's bonded you with? What would we say about a marriage 10 years after? I don't care how great the wedding was. We had a great wedding, spent all this money. It was the best wedding on the face of the earth. 10 years later, tell me where you're at. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's point is God did not save you so you can be a statue in a museum that everybody comes and gawks at. He created us in Christ Jesus to be like Christ, to live and move and walk and be a part of his good works. And in fact, that's the privilege of the local church. That's the privilege of a believer. You don't have to live by your works anymore. You do have to work, but you get to be a part of his good work. And what is his good work? It's to unite believers in Christ. And as we look at Jesus, when he came on earth, what did he do? I'm here to do all my own good works. I'm here to make a splash. I'm here to have a movement. What did he say repeatedly? I am here to do whose work? The work of my father. My words are not my words, they're the words of my Father. Everything he did was by the power of the Spirit to do the Father's work that he'd given him. And it's interesting to see, I still haven't found a place in the Bible where Jesus is rushed. I still haven't found a place in the Bible where Jesus is freaked out about his schedule. I still haven't found a place in the Bible where Jesus does not make time for the weak to the children, the least among us. Never in a hurry. Maybe it's because he was not busy with all the things that clutter our lives, but instead he was focused on one single thing, to do the work of his father. And top priority of the work of his father was to die on the cross for you and I. Well, what are these good works that God prepared beforehand that believers are to walk in? Is it street evangelism? Is it short-term missions? Is it working on the AV or praise team? But Paul explicitly comes out in verses 11 through 18 and walks us through what God's good works are that he calls us to walk in. He says in verse 11, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were a project that needed work. The Apostle Paul's point to the Ephesians is they were cut off, they were estranged, they were far from God in every possible way. And the work involved was somehow bringing these offensive and toxic sinners and bringing them into the household of God and connecting them with Christ. Because this is what he goes on to say in verse 13 through 18. 
God's work, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. Christ's sacrificial and atoning work on the cross. For he himself is our peace who has made us. This is the Apostle Paul and the Ephesians, Jews and Gentiles, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through what? The harvest festival? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, who's he? John Piper and John MacArthur? And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. How did Jesus preach to the saints at Ephesus? He did it through his faithful servants, Aquila and Priscilla. Or, and he did it through the apostle Paul. And Timothy comes later. He did it through faithful servants. It's the proclamation of the gospel. Christ still speaks to his church. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Brothers and sisters, what are the good works that God has prepared beforehand for believers to walk in? They are nothing less than God's amazing works of grace in Christ that expose our sinfulness and our separation and our alienation from God. This is what Paul's talking about in the beginning. Christ's work in your life when he comes in isn't, hey, you're great as you are, don't change a bit. Whatever you want, whatever you choose, whatever you think you should be, whatever role you have in the church, no, he comes in and says, hey, you're not fit to be here, but I'm the remedy. You're not fit to lead this home. You're not fit to pastor this church. You're not fit to parent these children. But I am. It's God's amazing work of grace that perfectly fulfills all of God's righteousness and all of God's justice and all of God's word on our behalf. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about tearing down the walls that come between them, when he's talking about and making reference to the old covenant and the barriers that are in between, removing the hostility. He's pointing back to the life of Christ where everything that Jesus did in obedience to the Father fulfilled God's word and brought a righteousness that we don't bring to the table. You can't get there. You can't do it. You can't get to God. I'm going to do it for you. It's nothing less, brothers and sisters, than Christ giving his life for ours to reconcile us and to unite us together with God. These are God's works of grace that we are to continue to walk in. How often, brothers and sisters, we get saved, we join a ministry, and we think of all the things that we need to do or should do or the church should be doing. And suddenly we dispense with God's works of grace and we bring in the world and we bring in all our great ideas and we bring in all the things that made our life, our marriage, our relationships toxic in the first place. 
Why can't we leave it at the door and say, God, you do a better job than I do at shepherding the home. You do a better job than I do husbanding a wife. You do a better job than I do parenting these children. Would you come in and could I learn from you and could I walk in your footsteps and can I lean on you? Would we not pray, brothers and sisters, so much more? And would we not devote time on our knees to be encouraged like Christ was in the midst of a busy schedule? And of course, this work includes preaching and proclaiming the gospel, not only to those who are near, but to those who are far off as well. Brothers and sisters, there's no shortage of books and debates on what the work and the mission of the church should be. Everybody's got, you know, we, we need, this should be the mission of the church. We need to be planting churches, we need to be going out, we need to do this, that, and we need a vision for the church. Is Christ's vision and his work for the church not enough? Because there's only one work that truly unites people with God and with one another, and that includes the members of our family, brothers and sisters. The only work that truly unites people with God and one another is God's work of grace in Christ, which is also known as the gospel, the good news of what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, is what true believers in the local church are to devote their time to. This is why we read scripture and long passages of scripture. It's not to put you to sleep. It's the conviction and belief. Look, this is what saved us. The power of God's word speaking into our lives. This is what we should be living. This is what we should be walking. This is what we should be singing. This is what we should set our minds on. Brothers and sisters, how much less anxiety would we have if our minds were fixed? on the sufficiency of the gospel for every aspect of our lives rather than us trying to manage and fix. Because this is what has saved us, brothers and sisters, and this is what we were created for. This is what Paul's saying, you were created for this. To place on display not your greatness, but God's amazing work in Christ in every aspect of your life. So when people see our shepherding, our parenting, when they look at our financial statement, which nobody's looking at, they say, whoa, you're different. Christ is present. There is a work of grace that's happening. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, only... Let your manner of life be worthy of what? The gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in what? One spirit with one mind, striving, ongoing, laboring, toiling hard. That word striving. Really working hard. Side by side for what? The faith of the gospel. There is a place for hard work in the church, brothers and sisters. Don't, don't get me wrong. Just because we're talking about the church is the place where God's grace, it doesn't mean we can do whatever. Paul didn't do whatever. He didn't bring mediocrity to the table. Why? 
because the work he was about was his father's work. He respected it. He valued it. Brothers and sisters, how much would we devote to the smallest duty in the church? Would we feel discontent even if we were given a lowly job? If we were mindful that this work is not my work, but I respected it and said this is part of God's amazing work of grace. That's why the psalmist in the Old Testament says, hey, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather live in a tent and be in the kingdom and the household of God than be a rich man or a wealthy man or the king of the hell. Give me the Joe jobs, the janitorial service in the temple. I'd rather do that. Why? Because it is the work of the Lord and I highly esteem it as opposed to I'm too good for this. It's about laboring hard, brothers and sisters, in God's work, not our work. Why? Our final point for this morning. The church is God's dwelling place in Christ. The church is God's dwelling place in Christ. When we gather together, brothers and sisters, when we gather together in someone's home for a Bible study, Are we mindful that where two or three are gathered in the name and in obedience to Christ, Christ is present in our midst? Why did Christ come and suffer and die on the cross and rise again? Why did the Apostle Paul suffer and strive and give his life for the gospel and by extension the local church? Why did he do it with such joy and delight? Why have saints throughout history loved and served and given their lives joyfully by faith for the gospel and for the local church? Paul tells us in verses 19 through 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're now a part of the family. You're a member by God's grace in Christ, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, ongoing, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together, ongoing, into what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. From Genesis through Revelation, the good news of God's word is that nothing, not the devil, not the world, not your sin and mine, can or will stop our holy creator from dwelling together in love with his family and his people in Christ. Nothing can stop the love of God from providing a place where he can dwell in love and in peace and without sin with his people. And in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the sign God gave to bear witness to this divine truth was first the tabernacle, which traveled with the people all the way through the wilderness. You're traveling through the wilderness, I'm with you. And then afterwards, the temple. And it was the temple, a marvel of the ancient world. It was built on massive stone blocks, And according to the specifications of Scripture, and for nearly 1,000 years, it served as a visible testimony to God's work of grace 
in the nation of Israel, that God had provided a way for his people, sinful and unholy as they were, to be forgiven and to dwell and to be close and to be near to a God who had chosen, I'm going to live in your midst. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be close to your family a place for his spirit and his word to dwell with them. That's what the temple was. It was a sign. But as Jesus and then the author of Hebrews reminds us, this old covenant and this temple were merely shadows and signs given by God to prepare God's people for the Lord God's eternal masterpiece of grace, his living temple. A temple that's composed not by massive stones, but of rocks, lives that are transformed by the grace of God, lives that are placed side by side, lives that have been placed on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is the scriptures, and ultimately with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. The closest the world can come, brothers and sisters, are sports stadiums and skyscrapers, where people gather each week in concrete and steel to cheer a team or to serve a corporate empire, to pay tribute to the work and to the glory of men, all of which one day is going to burn like Lahaina. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of God's word is that what the true local church is, is God's mighty work of grace that Christ gave his life for, that Christ loves, that he has purchased and bought with his blood, and that he is presently doing a good work. And how is he doing that good work? He's squeezing us in tightly side by side on his word and ultimately on his life, the cornerstone. What a cornerstone does is it sets the direction for the building so that everything fits together, and as it's built, you look at it and you say, ah, I understand what the builder was doing and what he was trying to accomplish here. And so the question for us, brothers and sisters, is are you part of that work? Because if you are part of that work, we're going to be close together. There's not one brick over here or one brick over here. The foundation is going to be God's word and the direction is going to be Christ's life and we're going to be put together and God is going to continue to build and build and build and build. Why? Because in love, his desire is to dwell with the people he has saved, that we would be the dwelling place of the most high God. Is Christ, brothers and sisters, our rock and cornerstone? So our final application, if I could have my last slide, how do we love and serve Christ church together? One, are you part of Christ church? Are you a member? Are you actively involved? Are you striving for the gospel? God didn't save us, brothers and sisters, to be fans, to sit in the stadium and cheer every week to our favorite songs and our favorite team and hope we get a win. Are you part? And the answer to that is, are you connected to Christ? Because if you are connected to Christ and his word, you're going to be connected to people whose lives are being transformed. And if that is true, number one, praise and pray for the church. Don't praise the church. Oh, we're such a great church. We do this, we do that, we do whatever. No, if you look at Paul, he praises God for the church. 
God, praise be to you for the amazing thing you are doing in the lives of your saints. Pray for the church, brothers and sisters, because that's what Paul does during those first few chapters. And what does he pray for? That they would see the beauty and greatness of what God is doing in their midst. Walk worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. What's your private like life like when nobody looks and sees? Are you walking in the light? Paul's saying you already have unity with Christ. You already have unity in the church. Don't mess it up. Don't start bringing all these other things in. Walk worthy of the gospel. If you're going to be eager to maintain the unity of the church, you're going to walk with Christ because he's the only one who can preserve your unity. And finally, be equipped, fitted, corrected for the work of ministry. How? By growing in the gospel. Every person in the church is meant to play a part. Every person is meant to have a role. Every person has been given the privilege of laboring hard for the gospel. But guess what? You don't know how to do it, and neither do I, but Christ does. And so we have to come with humble hearts and say, yeah, maybe this stone needs to be filed down. Maybe it needs to be put in a different place. For God, not me, who knows best how to fit everything together, we need to be equipped. We need to be corrected. Don't assume you know, I've been a Christian for 10 years. I know how these ministries go. I've been to seminary. No. Dads, if your kids are growing, you need to grow. In knowing how to shepherd them, you need to be equipped. Don't think that knowing how to be a good father for a five-year-old is going to work for a 12-year-old. Husbands, don't think because you had a first good year in marriage that you've got it made. Your wives grow and your wives change and their needs change and you need to know them and you need to learn them and you need to grow. You need to be equipped. And same with the leaders of the church. It's a sad state and how many churches have died because guys say, hey, we're good and you just keep on keeping on. God's love for you is he's doing a work of grace and his call for us is to walk with him and to allow his word to come in and build you up so that we get to be a dwelling place that is growing and points to his work, not ours. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a gift that you have given us. What work you have done in our midst. May our lives, may our words, may all we do point to you and not us because your mighty work of grace in Christ is perfect and good. In your name we pray, amen.